0: trend is more interesting than just beta that it there's a lot of you know especially the way we think about it where there's sort of all these different the markets are made up of cycles of different frequencies and so if you're employing trend really what you're trying to capture is the meat part of those cycles and so there's some skill in understanding should I be short-term should I be long-term should I be medium-term should I adjust that over time why do I adjust that over time so there's It is definitely more interesting than just a a very straightforward, um, here's the beta, anybody could do this.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged.
2: Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where Alan Don and I are joined today by Ryan O'Grady, co-founder and CEO at Rowe Asset Management, as part of our mini-series focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend following and managed futures more broadly. First off, Ryan, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really have been looking forward to our conversation. How are you doing? Hope you had a good start to the new year. Uh, yeah,
0: doing great and thanks to you both for for having me. I excited to be part of the podcast. I'm a fan of the podcast, so, yeah, good start to the year, good end to the year, obviously. So, yeah, and
2: again, thanks for for having me. Absolutely, it's our pleasure. Now, before we dive into the different topics that we are going to discuss today, maybe just to set kind of the stage for the conversation, give a little bit of context to uh, for the audience. Maybe you can just say a little bit about the uh, you know the background of of your firm, in you know in particular, maybe the kind of strategies that you you, run and, and where the business uh, kind of stands as we enter into 2023 Sure
0: yeah so um so I'm a quant macro lifer and that's actually true of all of the row is uh, originally was kind of a, a group of people that had had worked together for quite some time like if you the, the row stands for Ryan O'Grady Weiser my partner Jeff Weiser and I have worked together since 1995 uh, and a lot of the core people, at Rowe have been together as a team and as a group since that time since I mean I started 1992 the so other people in the team started kind of around that time and so you know we've really been doing this our entire adult lives and the so Roe started in 2010 and our goal when we started the firm was to create a you know a true all weather return profile that had the divergent characteristics that one would expect from a from a, a member, you know, from a CTA, and and uh, you know, we are a member of the New Edge, or sorry, <laughs> Sock CTA Index, um, which um, you know, I believe is the twenty largest managers who are who are open, and you know, so for us, it's always been about having a divergent strategy, having something that adapts, right? So, so that you know, we we really only want run one strategy, which all of our best ideas kind of flow into and then we have sort of subsets off of that but yeah so the idea is it's sort of when you think of the spectrum of of active to passive where if your position is wrong how do you react do you just let it ride do you add to it do you react by reducing it and so we see ourselves as kind of the role that we 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 fit within sort of the investment world is we're on the reactive side. So it's you know the other side would be sort of equity beta or private equity things like that that'll hold positions for years, whereas we tend to react pretty quickly to to changes in market environment. And so you know that ends up looking like trend following. I think that's how we you know we we do correlate to trend followers. But yeah, so that's how we see ourselves. And then you know as far as business goes, like we have great relationships with our clients. I think that's really what makes this fun is that um you know we we created a return stream that we feel like is useful to people and um it has worked out to be useful to people so we're very happy with how that
2: interaction has gone sure no absolutely now we have created a long list of topics that we want to uh, to talk about and so we will uh, essentially go back and forth between Alan and I to uh, to dive into some of these. And as usual, Alan, maybe you can kick off the first uh, topic for us.
3: Sure. Um, I mean, Ryan, you touched on a few kind of features of your approach with being all we- weather, having this divergent characteristic, being reactive etc um if you were to describe the kind of investment philosophy which underpins um your approach to markets and and the reason that you believe that this is a good way to approach investing what 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 would you say about that that investment philosophy I think so beyond what
0: i said because you know trend following is is an approach where you are reacting in a pro, sort of procyclical way if your position is working well you are either keeping it or adding to it. And if it's working against you, you're reducing it. And so that is a um, a feature that our products have. But there is sort of a we do have an sort of a philosophy where we are agnostic to style. So we don't need a model to be a trend falling model for it to be useful to us. Uh, in fact, we do quite a bit of research on non-trend strategies. We feel like there's always a useful You know, it depends just on how much weight you want to put on the different strategies. But there's no matter what the approach is, whether it's a carry approach, you know, earning a yield on a position, whether that's sort of backwardation, contango, or that's sort of an FX trade or an interest rate trade or something in the long-term value uh, arena or short-term mean aversion, or there's uh, any any approach where a systematic, you know, a, a, a set of systematic models is going to yield a durable output of profitable returns that you can depend on over time I, I think that's it's going to we're going to find a way to to use that at some weight and that's you know the, the philosophy also is that we're continually trying to think about new ways to to add models to our system that um you know to a certain extent this is a constantly changing game and so um i know we have some competitors who think of you know, they, they feel like, well, we've got something. It's worked for a very long time, and so this is the commitment we have to this approach, that we're going to stick with it, whereas we're maybe a little different, where we feel like the the, the markets are constantly changing. And so it's not so much that it's changing and ruining stuff that we've built. It's more it's changing and creating opportunities to come up with, with something new. So, um, okay, so that sort of so, approach is, yeah.
3: Yeah, so not, not so much the case that you have a kind of a fundamental belief in any particular model or a fundamental mental belief that trends will always be evident in markets and that'll be the way it's it's more belief that there will be opportunities to capture via research and that you can do that
0: yeah that's exactly
3: yeah exactly right okay and then in terms of the kind of investment objective so you you mentioned all weather so yeah you're, you're aiming then for a strategy that's not just a Diversifier again, some some CTAs might, might come from the perspective of generating a, an uncorrelated return profile to, to equities. It sounds like your philosophy is you're aiming to generate positive returns regardless of the market environment. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, so that's definitely like we the the, the assist, our approach is not designed around other you know a greater portfolio necessarily. It does work out that way, but. Right I mean the, the first investors in this in this program were you know were Jeff and I and so you know we designed it to make money and actually we had we've had interesting conversations with our clients where we talk about well you know we underperformed here but you know the, the whatever index did worse and and they even say to us look we really just count on you guys to make money you know we'll we'll certainly point out when our you know when when the return stream that we're throwing off sort of works in a portfolio in a particular way but but yeah I mean the the the, the core goal is that, that that the you know that our performance stands on its
3: own and and just delving into like why there should be these opportunities in markets you know why why should a research process be able to unearth kind of inefficiencies or anomalies is it market microstructure behavioral biases I mean what's your perspective on that
0: I, I guess it's it's you know, all of it, right? So this is a closed system of market participants. And um, there are some people who play you know, well or try to play well, and we sort of fit in that category of we are in this system, system I mean like the markets that we trade in, uh, trying to, you know, earn a positive return. There are other people who are in this system for some other reason for, you know, risk mitigation or... And then there's just some people who you know, there's behavioral biases or you know, the greed fear cycle. or you know, then there's even people who run strategies where they're forced to do a trade that they may not want to do, like you know, some sort of risk parity system that when ball goes up, they are forced to sell their positions whether they believe that's a good idea or not. So that mix of participants, some of whom are, you know, making, it's it's really about trying to make the most good decisions. Versus trying to avoid the most, avoid mistakes or avoid. Uh, so that's kind of on the active side. How you know someone who has a, a solid approach is able to to succeed. Versus you know, there's there's some participants out there who really are not interested in you know they're not part of the market for profit. I mean, the, there's in the foreign exchange world, there are central banks who you know have no interest in you know profitable trading. Their interest is in smoothing. You know monetary policy or something like that for their country and so sometimes they're doing things that they know are not necessarily uh profitable trades they're doing them for some some other reason and so that's what that's what creates opportunities for firms like us
2: yeah no I'm, i want to stay on on some of these uh topics you mentioned uh, that you have kind of this all-weather approach but you also mentioned trend following and so on and so forth and it kind of reminds me of of an article that uh, Cliff Asnes wrote a few months ago. Um, I guess he was taking it from a standpoint of of trend following, but he was essentially saying that many of those who were identifying themselves as trend followers um, a few years ago kind of changed along the way, uh, adding more stuff to their uh, strategies maybe as a response to fewer trends for a period of time. But... Maybe also and and I wanted to hear your perspective of this, maybe also because we are all being influenced to some extent and maybe therefore we're all becoming too concerned about our sharp ratio, <laughs> so to speak what what are your thoughts uh, on 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 that uh, you know should should we be concerned about our sharp um and um yeah. Okay, yeah. So that paper
0: was forwarded to me by a, a few of our clients, actually, and they said, "What you know? What do you think of this?" Because they know that um, that row would kind of be the opposite side of what what that paper was arguing. Uh, and so, I guess the one difference between us and sort of the foil of that paper is that we've always been committed to having a multi-strategy approach. But the other thing about the paper was it kind of implied that. You know, manage Futures CTA has a specific role, and that role is um and you know we don't necessarily agree with with that, that the role of of what we're doing, that's kind of up to the to the purchaser. Maybe they have a different idea of what it's supposed to do. So um so that was part of it. I mean, I think the other part that when we think about what is trend following, and trend following is not long vol, I think then that's that's not necessarily what the paper was about, but I do think it's important to to remember when you're when you're putting together a, a portfolio of strategies and you feel like well I need to stay committed to trend because trend is long ball and I you know I need to be part of you know or, or I need to throw off a long ball P and but trend falling isn't long ball. In fact if you look at the skew, the daily skew of a trend falling strategy it's negative and that's true for you know, a very long time and it's because on huge shock days usually trend followers have the wrong position initially and then they eventually get to the right position. But really what trend followers are is they're long, low-frequency vol and short, high-frequency vol, and they're also uh, short liquidity. I mean, they the trend followers require, um, you know, if a trend follower could execute its entire strategy instantly for no cost, the, the profitability of the strategy would be much higher. So, you yeah. know, so in those initial shock moments, when you know, sort of going back to the paper, that's kind of... You know the implication of the paper is that this is why you're in the trend following space is because you're worried about these things. It's not even necessarily a trend that performs the best in the first moment of the or the first day or the first week of those sorts of events. And so I think it's it's better well, you know that's our obviously our philosophy that it's better to think of in more of a holistic you know think of well there's low frequency vol, there's high frequency vol and markets are cyclical that if you think of well what is a trend following model? Like trend, if if you believe the trend is the right model to use to um to replicate behavior that we see, then you would expect prices to reach infinity or zero with certainty eventually. And that isn't actually what happens. So, or at least, you know, not not to the extent that a true trend following data generating process would would imply. So we think of there's long cycles where they're long enough that trend following approaches can exploit them and then there are short cycles and then you know the nature of cyclicality leads to longer term or even shorter term value mean aversion type approaches and then in between you know, the, you have you have the ability to hold things and get paid for them so to us if you limit yourself to trend following given the way that we see how markets behave you're sort of you're just I mean i compared it to a haiku you're sort of limiting yourself you're just you're saying well i'm going to approach i'm going to exploit this part of how things work and not the rest of it
2: yeah no interesting and also just staying on on the on the paper a little bit because uh, i think cliff introduced um kind of this idea that trend following has a dual mandate uh, one was I think to make money but also to make money in particular when when equities uh were in a crisis and I certainly remember when the term crisis alpha um got introduced uh, after the financial crisis uh, I thought it was great I'm not so in the in the same camp anymore because I think we just end in ending a debate about what is a crisis instead but I know that you sit maybe a little bit outside of that so maybe this is a question where you look in at the Pure, more, maybe more pure trend followers uh, in our space, and um, but do you think that? Um, I, I'm curious about what you think about maybe investors' expectation to what we as quote unquote, or maybe I shouldn't say we in this case, but trend followers, um, what what investors should expect from a more pure trend following strategy if we take. A step aside from what you're doing specifically because clearly trend is part of what you do
0: yeah and i think from from the point of view of of investors pure trend and what we're doing are are pretty close right like you know it's sort of you see the differences more when you're right you know right down in it with a, another participant but from the outside i think you know we're, our correlation is pretty high to to pure trend um and so yeah i mean i i It is actually something you have to be careful about when you're talking to people because you don't, you certainly don't want to make any promises or guarantees of how you're going to perform in an equity drawdown. I think the right way to think about it is um, to sort of work from the other direction to say, okay, let's let's imagine a scenario where, I mean, this one's going to be kind of self-serving since because it just happened, but let's imagine a scenario where both stocks and bonds go down 20%. What strategies could possibly make money in that environment? And so then. You know whether the the trend followers of the CTA community do or don't. They could have, and or it certainly created a, an opportun- a window of opportunity for them. So, when you're trying to put a portfolio together, you know certainly you you did your job in including a divergent strategy, even if you know sometimes the setup of it won't work out the way you would have hoped. Like. Um, I mean, equities in the in the past 12 months have been pretty difficult, even though they were in a downtrend. If you look at the the really strong performance of CTAs in the last 12 months, it, it had nothing to do with with equity. It had it was all about sort of interest rate moves and uh, commodity moves. But I I think it's still correct to think of it more as uh, let's imagine a st- different scenarios, different possibilities, and just think about you know what what would be the right you know who could do well in those types of scenarios or, or
2: and then who probably won't do very well and then balance the approach that way and i think that makes a lot of sense uh ryan and actually what's interesting also is that even though on on, a, on an industry basis no doubt 2022 was an important year was a great year um, but it was also a year actually where there were a, a lot of dispersion in returns at the same time so um, again, a little bit about how you, uh, how you in- implement your, your rules and, and, and risk management, so to speak. Speaking of that, Alan, maybe it's time to dive into one of your favorite topics.
3: Yes, uh, research. Um, I mean, Ryan, you you touched on how you started off in the kind of early to mid nineties. You've been doing this ever since, Um, and you you know you've you've emphasized how your view is that there are opportunities to to be extracted from research over time. Um, Where do you get the inspiration for, for for research? Is it academic papers? Is it just observing the markets, um, and, and then how do you go about, you know, starting with an idea to bring it into a possible trading model in the portfolio?
0: Yeah, so I mean, there is definitely a connection to academia that's important. That you know, our research team is pretty small, and it, it's, that's always been true for us. And you know, even at our at our prior the the firm that we were all at together previously, the research team was never more than four or five people. Uh, and the, the you know the team here same thing four or five people doing work together and so you know, academic research becomes a force multiplier where if if we're canvassing you know one or 200 papers a month then those are you know you can you can jokingly say that those are unpaid assistance for us or interns or things like that and then but i think this the strength our you know what i perceive it to be our strength is on being able to read a paper and have some intuition about, okay, this person has figured something out versus, you know, this is just sort of overfit nonsense. And I think there is kind of a, a balance where you know we have interns come in and one of the first things that we give them is like here's you know it's I fit the whole thing on like one piece of paper. It's like here's some, some moving average crossovers and here's like a really simple carry concept and here's just a basic moving average, you know two standard deviations go the other way. And I give we give that to them and within a week they've produced a, a, a return stream that is pretty compelling. like it's not bad. It, it would be kind of an average uh, CTA when you put them all together and so that's kind of the simple side of the spectrum and then the the super aggressive research you know it would be like having a team of 100 people and all this ai technology and trying to create the perfect model and so there's this really and there are firms like that too there's firms with really simple models there's firms with incredibly complex and you know approaches with huge research teams full of machine learning specialists and phd's and things like that and you know we find ourselves very comfortably in the middle of that that we do you know the the issue with the super complicated approaches is maybe the intuition isn't there and uh, our industry is where you know that there's not really statistical certainty on whether a model works or not until it's run for a pretty long time and then when it's run for a pretty long time there's not certainty that the conditions that led to its success are still uh, you know still apply so you know, an example we give all the time is the GSCI roll trade, where uh, there was an inefficiency in the market created by you know a lot of passive money on a commodity index that, if you had an AI program, would have found it, and a lot of you know people in the sort of the middle of that range I described found it and profited from it, and then um, the the inefficiency was fixed and it went away, and so you know that's where intuition would come in and say, oh, I you know they fixed it. It's not gonna be that the trade's not there anymore. And so we're gonna stop trying to exploit it. The, the, I guess the struggle, the rigor of of our approach is making sure we're we're in the right spot of we're doing as much work as we can do, but staying within the realm of that everything we're doing it makes intuitive sense.
3: And and then obviously, I mean you're basically highlighting the the ongoing challenge of 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 doing research, I guess, and and deciding. What, what what's going to be persistent over time, but you know, so so what does that look like in terms of when you have your your system and then presumably go and, and as uh, reassess look and and things like that? What, what what does it take to to kind of make changes to the system? Is it as much? Uh, is is it significant deviations uh, from from in terms of performance with the new system relative to the old system? Coupled with kind of some kind of intuitive assessment that 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 it's the right thing to do, or how do you think about that?
0: Hopefully, when if we're adding a model, it's because we've sort of pre-understood a weakness in our. So, like, let's say you know, we're just sitting around chatting, and we're like, "Well, what if X, Y, and Z happens? How would our mix of models handle that scenario?" And we realize, uh, you know, maybe not so well. And you know, an example might be like crowding. Okay, let, let's say you know there's there's a lot of talk now that that our industry is going to see an influx of of capital over the next few years because that's pretty standard for when there's a big run in in the industry that there's the inflow comes twelve to twenty four months later, and so then it's like, well, how will that impact our strategies? Is there an, an obvious negative to that? And is there a model that if that negative scenario presented itself, that this particular model would actually do really well in that spot, and so then, if we we all are in agreement, yeah, okay, this type of model would do well in that spot, then we start doing the sort of lit review and and trying to develop that model before it actually becomes necessary or useful, and then you know sort of have it ready. So that would be kind of the best case scenario for how things get added to the portfolio, and then the worst case scenario or not, or sort of the other. Would be you know we had a, a model that's um, that's core thesis was globalization, and you know it was pretty clear uh, in 2016-17 that that trend was reversing, and so that would be an indic- Now that it had nothing to do with the model's performance. You know we didn't do like a t statistic or you know this that or the p value or any of those things to say this model should be turned off. It was just the f- the thesis behind it didn't really match reality anymore so so we turned it off
3: okay and you know in the whole research world the big topic in the last number of years has been you know machine learning and that that that, that there's been great strides in what can be done from a kind of machine learning perspective and you know i, I my sense is mixed success some some managers seem to have done well with others less so is that something you you've extensively used in your approach and what what do you think are the merits and pitfalls of of incorporating machine learning? I think,
0: well, I mean, machine learning is is obviously really, really good at certain things. We just haven't seen that it's good at this yet. Like, I and there's probably people out there who have figured out ways to use it. Uh, I, but I think the issue is your 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 what your your data set coming in is a constantly changing data set that is resistant to you solving it. So You know, you'll see this isn't quite machine learning, but like, let's say someone writes down a series of rules on a piece of paper and says, "Well, I'm going to manage ten billion dollars on this and make ten percent a year." It's like, well, you expect the market to lose a billion dollars a year to you with rules you wrote on a piece of paper, and they're not going to. That's not, you know, the the market will adapt, and so the market's constantly adapting, and that's where I think machine learning uh, might struggle. That in all other machine, I mean, maybe with the, uh, you know, I'm thinking spam email is kind of the classic example of how machine learning has gotten better. And spam is kind of a good, a good test for machine learning because spammers are constantly trying to adapt themselves to avoid getting caught. So, but that is kind of the nature of financial markets. They they are resistant to being exploited, and they adjust to you. And um, and so, you know, the the GSCI roll trade again. A machine learning model would have found that and but it doesn't know when it stopped working. It doesn't know that the it doesn't know it's not aware of how the adaptation happened. You know, linear regression is a machine learning technique, just a very simple one. And so I am not gonna say we don't use it at all, but it's it's we certainly don't use it to the extent where we have models that work and we don't understand why they work.
3: Okay. So I mean you you touched on maybe the um the example of, you know, the possible um influx of capital into into trend and, and that might be a model for consideration uh you know anything else you know uh, in broad terms what are the new areas for, uh, for research that that you're excited about is it alternative data sets or is it just dynamic opportunities that might present themselves as as markets evolve
0: well i think yeah i mean that you know thinking about how uh, you know flows definitely affect markets and so that will become more important if the number or the capital behind strategies like ours increases. So that is kind of a big topic for us right now. And you mentioned alternative data. Like we definitely I mean obviously if you're an alternative data provider, you're you're knocking on every single door. So we get to see all these different things that people are collecting and doing. I think a lot of it it doesn't apply to us because it would be more for equity managers or you know long short equity, things like that, because you know we're trading big things uh, the ones i mean the one source of alternative data that does it's not not really alternative but just maybe new to us would be some sort of statistics on what people are holding um but i wouldn't say we're big consumers of alternative
3: data okay so it, kind of custody holdings things like that positioning and flows that, that that's kind of what you're getting at there yeah
0: the, and but even then so it's it's tough because like um the individual you know, individual you know large custodian type names want to sell that sort of data, which we find to be kind of not not kosher or not cool, I guess. Let like they're sort of profiting from what their customers are doing. So that sort of data, we we sort of shy away from. We don't. Um, but but regulatory agencies, if they're reporting data like that, then you know we'll we're interested in that.
2: Yeah, just staying on that. Just before I move on to um, well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of different types of of diversification there there are kind of two um topics that often come up on the podcast one is kind of the the view about how many markets should you trade but i'm also because i this is my understanding of of what you've been talking about so far is that the diversification across different types of models is also something you uh apply and and find uh, very valuable so i'd love to maybe ask you to talk about what you think the difference is between these two types of diversification within a systematic uh, strategy, but also specifically maybe in terms of, you know, do you think there is kind of a a, a limit uh, in terms of how many markets you really need to to focus on? Likewise, how many types of models you should uh, focus on?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, both have the same risk, which is so let's do it with markets that's easier to to explain. So if let's say you have 10 markets and your expected return or expected sharp trading, let's let's just stick to trend falling. So you have a trend falling system, a very simple trend falling system. You apply it to one market, you assume the sharp of that is 0.2. If you could apply it to nine uncorrelated markets, now your sharp's 0.6 um, if those markets are really uncorrelated. And then as you move higher and higher and higher, you theoretically should be able to achieve a higher sharp ratio, and, and you should theoretically benefit monotonically from adding markets. So the caveat to that and the risk to that is that as the number keeps going up, you're probably targeting a return, not necessarily sort of, you know. So if you trade one market versus 100 markets, you're probably going to put more than one 100th of your NAV on each market because you'll you'll say, well, I'm getting diversification, I still need to target a ball of whatever your target ball is and so I actually have to trade 2x or 3x or 4x what I would have traded if I only trade one market. And now you've introduced the risk that your your correlations are wrong uh, on those different markets. And So this is true both in the, you know, you can make the same exact claim about strategies that are supposed to be different. And so, you know, within the markets, the number of markets, we feel like there is a, there's kind of a right number and we're always thinking about what that number is. And um, to the extent that it can be expanded, we obviously would love for that to be true. You know, one of the sort of, markets in China that are not really open to non-chinese speculators or or maybe they are but the sort of the way to to approach them are sort of unfavorable at the moment those when you load them in they look pretty interesting like they look like they could definitely add something so there you know there's always going to be an opportunity out there for adding markets and then same thing with strategies you know one of the things that you can look at for how to mix strategies and how to sort of try to give yourself some Confidence or some assurance that you haven't made that leveraging mistake. So you sort of consider them at extremes, like what is the max position, long or short? These different strategies could get, and th- th- that's really where it matters um, in terms of making a big mistake. In terms of you know having strategies that you think are different that all of a sudden become similar, uh, that's only that only matters when huge things are happening. And so you can you can do a lot of scenario type analysis both. Actual, like sort of simulation and just you know, thought, thought scenarios of how models should react. Um, but, but again, you know, in both cases, I think there's, you know, in theory, there should be nothing but benefit to adding. But in practice, there is sort of a, a sort of a backward bend at some point when you've added too many.
2: Yeah, and 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 given your 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 AUM now, what, how many markets do you actually trade? I'm not, I I, I don't know how. It's, yeah, so it's, I think it's 97. Okay, so about 100 markets. Okay. Now, I want to shift gear a little bit to something that um, became a big topic, uh, at least in my little uh, bubble uh, last year. Maybe partly because uh, suddenly these strategies got a lot of attention and, and this time around some good attention because everything else was losing money. And so uh, suddenly replication of these strategies became a thing and we saw uh, obviously one uh, particular ETF do really well in terms of uh, growth in AUM, uh, which replicates the SockGen uh, CTA index that you uh, are a member of and 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 most of the people we're speaking to in this series are a member of so so i wanted to ask you a little bit about replication M- maybe how it feels to be replicated <laughs> but also maybe more importantly what you think of um because if you're familiar with the product in this case it's not a it's not a a trend model. It's a linear regression of the data that Sokjen, uh delivers uh, to your point earlier about linear regression and, and its limitations. But I'd love for you to talk about how you f- just feel about replication. don't really want to put my opinion in, into your uh, thinking, but just how you feel about replication of these type of strategies. Obviously, you know the nitty-gritty of them, um, so you probably also have some thoughts about um, what the pros and cons might be uh, if you want to try and replicate them um, using linear gr- regression of sorts.
0: Yeah, so in fact, we have a, a program that replicates. I mean, whatever it replicates, whatever you put in. Okay. Uh, and it it. Um, oh, but it can, does can, so. Can it replicate
2: wh- Medallion Fund, Ryan? Because
0: then I might be interested. <laughs> well, not well. That's the thing. So it, <laughs> it 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 replicates out of a of a set of of. Really simple toy models. So it says, okay, I've got this this set of little models and very simple rules, and let me see if I can put together a mix of these different things to match the returns that I see. And for you know, it it can get pretty close. For the, the more deterministic a strategy is, and and the more sort of especially if it's limited to the same sort of markets that you know the biggest markets, then the closer it'll get. And so like that's reality like and you know going back to the 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 project that we give our interns they can produce a you know pretty okay return with uh and a, a a series that would have done really well in 2022 with very little knowledge and understanding and really just essentially fitting what other people have previously done. So that's our our job is to be better than that. So you know we're obviously very aware of of not just replications. I mean, it is kind of interesting to replicate a strategy that is not granted the CTA index is not pure trend, but trend is a strategy. So it doesn't really sort of doesn't need to be replicated. What it is is fairly straightforward. So that would be the only thing that's that's maybe a little bit surprising that someone would even want to attempt to replicate a strategy that is in itself rules-based. And somewhat publicly rules based, but yeah, I mean, we just we see that as a competitor. We under like we have people that we talk to who you know have have hired managers like that, uh, and that's what they want.
2: Okay, so and we we've certainly seen that that as you say, um, uh, performance can certainly during uh, periods of time uh, be very similar, uh, and and maybe even sometimes higher than than the index it's trying to replicate. So that's that's fine. But since you Know so much about this field? What are the risks that that you see these type of approaches present that investors may not see because they might they may just be focused on on the headline saying, "Well, we can by analyzing the data essentially pretty much get the broad exposure that these managers have, and therefore we can do it at a lower fee." Um, so that's a compelling narrative, frankly. Um, I personally. Um, think that there must be a trade-off here so there must be some some risks in there and um, I'm sure you have a much better view of that those risks what they may be so I'd love to hear your thoughts about it uh if if you could well that's yeah so I mean when going back to our approach
0: that we think about how to be as anti-fragile as possible so um So I guess the drawback to a to a formulaic strategy like that is it's not thinking in a forward way about what might impact it negatively and what sort of models could be added to the library that would mitigate uh, those periods. And so really, it's all about how to how you perform in periods when let's just stick with trend falling. So how do you perform when trend falling is not performing well? And let's go back to the you know the sort of spectrum of complexity of of a system. So. You know, people would ask, like, you know, uh, like how, you know wh- why do you think you've grown and other firms haven't grown when, you know, when returns prior to 2020 were pretty mediocre in the entire space? And and you you make this analogy about a bear chasing a group of people, and it's like, well, I don't need to outrun the bear, I just need to outrun you. you know, so having a, a, a sort of a mix of, of strategies that still maintains that sort of exposure that people are hoping to get from you but not dependent on it and sort of and always forward thinking and always at you know not just even about strategies but also markets and and then you know various risk management techniques where all we ever think about is you know mitigating drawdowns because when you know if crude goes to $200 every trend follower, assuming it doesn't go there in an instant, every trend follower will profit from that. So that's not the hard part. The hard part is what if it just stays between 70 and 90 for the next six months to a year, how are you going to handle that? And so that's where somebody like us and somebody doings, whether it's a replication or just a strict, here's my rules, I'll even show them to you on a piece of paper, kind of low fee beta trend, That you know, that's, that's the value proposition there is like, um, who's you know managing the the sort of off
2: periods better yeah no good 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 point speaking about managing the off points uh alan do you want to dive into some risk management
3: yeah so you talked about managing the drawdown which i guess there's a couple of aspects obviously you know if, if we were talking to maybe a a trend follower who then moved into multi-strat you know i suppose that's been the journey for some people that they started off a trend and then they wanted to mitigate those drawdowns and they added other strategies um i mean your it sounds like your journey has been slightly different driven by a philosophy of being multi-strat from from the start so i i you know i guess the the drawdown um will, will hit when, when everything is kind of struggling at the same time so what's the What's your approach to dealing with that? Is it deleveraging in the first instance? Or is it um, just uh, sitting through it? Or or, or how do you you think about that?
0: Well, there is, yeah. So there are, like, we'll get asked, do you do, there's, like, drawdown management, um, sort of, where as you lose money, you reduce risk. And as you come out of the drawdown, you sort of put risk back on. So we're not... Believers in that specifically. I mean, I think where we're trying to combat when we think about managing drawdowns, we're thinking about having a mix of models that we feel like should respond well. And if you look at our performance during our drawdowns, um, it it does tend to be sort of you know less volatile, and that's just a function of the approach. Um, And so. But yeah, I mean, one of the things that that and obviously we spent being systematic, we're gonna we're gonna look at anything that that is potentially a systematic value add to to what we're doing. And so you look at these setups where, you know, if you go down one standard deviation, you cut to this, and you have this whole sort of rules based setup of how you you change your you sort of top down change your risk based on where you are versus your high watermark, and. what's interesting and you you know, try these for yourself and maybe you already have. It doesn't it doesn't work. You actually end up getting trapped in these uh these sort of death spirals where you keep cutting and then your performance is good, but you don't make as much as you would have. So but then you put money back on because you've come out of the drawdown and then you go back into another drawdown, you cut risk again, and so you get stuck and you can't get out because of the the way the system and so you know I've had colleagues that we've talked to that they ended up down more than they would have been if they had, you know, no drawdown management. So, and, and so that's part of it. And the other part is, you know, we have no idea how we fit into someone else's uh, portfolio. So, like, I, I think it would be, it, it would be off-putting if we were doing stuff like that when that might change how we're balancing something else that someone's got in their portfolio. Because of just our personal
3: cuts based on drawdown. Um, you, I mean, you mentioned that you're kind of obviously multi-strat, but then present in terms of return profile very similar to trend following, and you know you're part of the index, etc. So is that is that just a function of the risk allocations, and that although it's multi-strat, that the trend following does tend to dominate either the risk allocations or, or, or why is that?
0: Well, it's yeah. So I mean, trend is is it's it's the presence of trend and the weight that it has, first of all. But even within, so like let's say you're in a carry position, and carry you're not necessarily paying attention to direction. The whole point is it's a yield. But certainly, if you're a, you know you have a reactive philosophy, then if volatility goes up, you will cut the position. And so now you've taken on a, a trend-ish concept. And so, like we've noticed that our carry—not just actually ours, but in general—carry tends to have a positive correlation to trend because when it's working, it, it tends to be left alone. Versus when it's struggling, then reactive strategies will, will you know, reduce the certainly a notional value. And so then it will sort of pick up a correlation to trend in that in that way. And yeah, I mean, in general, when you know, when you're reactive, when that's your philosophy, then you will always have a correlation to trend, since trend is a reactive
3: strategy. Okay, and I, I, in terms of managing your the, the risk in the portfolio, um, I mean, what what as you said, it's multi-strat. So you have trends, you've got carry type strategies, and I think you mentioned kind of value short-term strategies presumably then at times everything will line up and you will have higher exposure so is kind of managing gross exposure the the philosophy or is that kind of alongside of all target or maybe gives a sense on how you think about the, the the particular metrics you're looking at
0: yeah well there's definitely a pyramid. you know just as a as a failsafe there is a pyramid of various concentration and limit checks so you're you're just trying to make sure you're not over concentrated anywhere so because we'll get like what if all your strategies say say the same thing? So they actually can't because um I mean you can have situations for sure where two let let's say two of them are similar. Like trend and carry certainly will, will spend periods of time being similar to each other. But you know, the whole point of of uh, mean aversion is you, you know, going back to the cyclical way of thinking that you, you know, so like think of a sine wave, it's it starts to move, your trend is profiting from it, then as it approaches the the sort of upper bound of where it's going to go, that's where you would hope your sort of value and mean aversion would start to lean against it. So the because the the pure trend approach, the one of its drawbacks is it tends to have its largest position when the trend is about to end. And so by thinking of markets more cyclically than than in trend, that's where you can design your combination of systems so that that in fact, you've started to reduce as the cycle starts to to sort of exhaust itself, but certainly we spend a, a considerable amount of time thinking about and checking and have systems in place to to sort of make
3: sure there isn't over concentration and and that that kind of idea of not getting too large at that point when the trend might reverse but it you know is kind of a choice in, in a sense that at the same time some of the big months in trend following is when you get the big position on and the trend extends um so is is that just a choice to try and deliver more consistency of performance as opposed to have that really convex return profile um or is it just a be- do you think it's just a better way to run a portfolio over the long term
0: well that's like so there are people who they're just, it's pedaled to the metal and they, if something's going, they're not getting off that until they're told that they're wrong and it's going to be full. And so it's not necessarily true that we will not have that. If we are prematurely reducing positions due to a mean reversion model, that means that model's losing money. And so we, we keep track of the, how our different models are doing. That is different than us. And so actually like when there are people out there who that's their philosophy and you know you can make an argument that there's a place for both of us like that that philosophy might be useful um, that there are, if you're only allocating let's say 1% to the space maybe that that sort of concept is preferable so i, I think yeah it, it's it's we're we're aware of that approach and it's it has its merits and, and but for it doesn't quite
2: fit with what we're doing Yeah, you mentioned something earlier, Ryan, where you said um, people might ask, you know, why have you grown uh, during a decade where the industry has basically stayed um, without growth if we take away uh, the performance growth we've seen uh, in 2022, maybe to some extent in 2021. And it also kind of brings me back to, um, I think, what happened after the great financial crisis. You also alluded to that. After these periods of time, like 2008, maybe 2022, we may see an inflow of money to the industry with a lag of 12, 24 months. Now, how do you think we as as participants, we as managers in this industry, how should we deal with capacity in general? And I guess one of the things that I wanted to explore a little bit more, uh, which maybe we haven't done in the... Um, other conversations is this balance between those who have essentially structured their uh, at least their trend following strategies as relatively low fee, uh, maybe even management fee only, and where you could say that the only way for them from a profitability point of view to m- make it a big impact that is just to take in money from clients. Whereas other firms, where they focus perhaps more on the performance fee, they might be much more sensitive to the point about capacity. You know, where does it start to hurt performance? I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, um, both as a manager, um, but maybe also as an industry. Because I think we got a little bit of a bad rap last time from 2008. And to some extent, people, rightly or wrongly, perhaps blamed it on uh, some issue with, Um, overextension of of capacity, even though I don't really think that that was the reason. But at some point, strategies do hit capacity. So how how do you think about that?
0: Yeah, so I mean, you know, just a general statement about fees. I I think people charge as much as they can. So if a strategy is simple, then the fee is probably low because that's what the market will bear. And so it really just comes down to um, what What's the, you know, where does it fit in the, like, what is what is a strategy worth to somebody? And, you know, performance fees in general, that's been, you know, considered favorable in our industry because it creates the alignment of interest that the manager is on the same side as the client and not, you know, a management fee only structure. While that might be, uh, you know, in a, in a gangbuster year, then you've, you feel proud that you you hired somebody with a management fee only because you didn't have to pay that big performance fee but on the other hand there's more that that tends to be and I think this is kind of what you were hinting at it's more of an asset gathering exercise uh, and then you know to the next point about you know if if there is an influx of of money into the industry and how will that affect things and did it affect things Well, so, i mean what's interesting about 07 and 08 the money wasn't there yet in our space so you know those moves had nothing to do really with what our industry was doing and so then the money came afterwards or i mean obviously there was money in our industry but like the inflow didn't cre- create the disruption the, dis- the disruption created the inflow and you know when thinking about it going forward you know it's a, i come back to this again that if assets make large moves then that's will be fine if if, if uh, you know if we see another bout of inflation like we did in the first four months of this year where that will be universally good for you know, whether there's the amount of money we have now in the industry or double, uh, that sort of those trend, trends were pretty much unmissable. the whipsaws, the liquidity, the you know how do you handle So if you're wrong and you decide you want to get out, and there's a lot more money doing something similar to you than there used to be, then the price you're gonna get is gonna be worse than before that money was there. So if you don't change anything about the way you're interacting with the market and more money comes in, then where crowding will hurt will be when trend's not working, that the return, like maybe you know, in the, in the old, old days, trend falling either made 20% or broke even, and then in the you know newer times, as more and more money came in, trend following either does well or loses, you know, a fair bit, and that that loss is a function of those whipsaws hitting harder because there's more money chasing or or you know on that idea, and so then it comes. This goes back to what I was saying. It comes down to can we do something to counteract that? Is there a way to adjust? And that adjustment would be in a you know some sort of non-trend model to account for for the loss that's going to take place so those would be the biggest risks of not so much like I don't markets don't move in excessive ways because of CTA flows like that's just they move because of something happening in the world right that that's so that's where I think those will be the
2: the, yeah Yeah, let me let me try and then summarize it a little bit um and and you know and ask it in a in, in in a slightly um different way also and that is Do you believe, let's just call it that, you know, the official CTA industry is now at maybe 400 billion, you know. Do you think that there is a limit to how much money in the official uh, CTA industry? Because obviously, I'm sure there are lots of people doing trend following that we don't see. But at the same time, if we think about this, if we see a a large amount of, of growth into our industry... Does it actually force managers to kind of revisit a little bit the way they do things, so, so to speak? Meaning, as you rightly point out, if if we all do things more or less the same, then there could be a lot more um, crowding at the at the turning points or, or whenever we identify the trends to have come to an end. And 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 does that actually uh, you as a manager? Does that give you ground to think about? Well, hang on. If, if the industry goes from four hundred to six hundred, maybe we need to think about how we get out of markets and 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 so on and so forth. I'm I'm just thinking out loud here, but what well, what are your thoughts on this, Ryan?
0: Yeah, well, definitely, and we do, and you definitely like that. Definitely should be thought about. I mean, another thing. Again, it's sort of a closed system of participants. You know, hopefully, if the you know, if the sort of CTA balance is growing, maybe the, the sort of the other players in the in the in the game are also growing, and so you know it's possible that we could grow, but the whole market could grow, uh, which it has. I mean, if you look at statistics of open interest over time, the commodities markets have grown tremendously over the last like 20 or 30 years. So, um, you know, that would be kind of the flip side. Is hopefully there's there's room for that extra, uh, the, the extra money on the strategies, but you know, let's say that people don't adapt; everyone just kind of keeps doing the same thing they're doing. Then what you would believe would be that the strategy should just become a little bit less profitable; that it wouldn't go to. To I mean, actually, it's sort of an interesting analogy that there was a poker boom and that mid2000s from uh, you know the whole cards being televised in the world series of poker and things like that and so there was a flood of new people playing poker and then there were some people who were really good at it and they were performing really really well and then as time went by the sort of participant pool started to shrink but the the pros were still there and so now they were competing so for them it was different it wasn't that they were growing it's that their pool was shrinking uh, but sort of same scenario where the the percent of participants who are profit seekers was going up. So it didn't drive them away, but it made it, you know, it just changed things to be a little bit more difficult and then the best players had to adapt. And actually, I, probably what what really came from that is that you started to differentiate from the the kind of good players and the really, really good players because the really good players could actually exploit the kind of good players and the bad players. So, you know, what, what actually what could happen is it would put more pressure on the sort of overly simplistic approaches and actually sort of different, then the sort of
2: differential between the, the the good and the just okay would grow. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, Ryan. And actually also, I'm kind of, while you're speaking there, I'm kind of reminding myself that when I started in this industry, there were less than $10 billion in total. And even back then, people were talking about, well, there's too much money coming into trend following, and yet here we are. And I think that it's the adaptability and uh, just the smart minds um, that are in this industry that find a way to... To deal with that, uh, which of course would be a, a, a positive problem, but uh, but let's see if investors, as you rightly say, will will be smart enough to to detect that some types of strategies might actually suffer compared to others, depending on uh, quote unquote their level of sophistication. <laughs> And then why don't you go through your last round of of questions, and then I'll wrap up with a few more.
3: Yeah, I mean, I suppose just shifting over to the perspective on the role of the strategies you run more of an, in a multi-asset portfolio, and you talked about kind of your engagement with clients. Um, we've kind of touched on this a little bit. I mean, obviously it being, uh, but maybe it's slightly different. in, in you know, in, in your case, if you know, if, if you're running a pure trend model, it's very much positioned as a diversifier as something different to what maybe a typical pension fund or or endowment holds in their portfolio by running a multi-strat are you in any way giving them some exposures that they might already have or not or how do you think about that Uh, and and is your the kind of strategy uh, the the portfolios you run do they fulfill the same role or is it just uh, kind of an absolute return Allocation in in the context of a, of a multi asset portfolio.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say the the first it's sort of this fascinating reality that everybody knows that if you just do a stock bond cash and you throw the CTA index in there, that it's going to look it's going to make the ratios look much better. Like, there's almost no point in even having that in a presentation because everyone agrees on it, and yet the allocation to strategies like ours is you know way less than what these types of models would indicate. So then the question is like why why is that? Um and so the, the like one reason is you know maybe these ratios are not necessarily what people are focused on that they're focused on a return goal and so it doesn't really matter that much. I mean actually what's inter- like we've spoken to family offices and it's like if do you make 20% well no Well, you know that's our goal every year. Every year we need to, and so and they don't mind if they lose forty percent because they just figure it'll come back eventually, and they're not really thinking about. They don't really have vol targets, so I mean that would be the first question: is you know if to the extent that you have a target vol that you're you're saying this is how much risk I want to take, and what strategy should I employ to feel Best about the return that I can achieve, then I, you know, that's where having something like us, you know, any member of the CT index would be beneficial to a portfolio like that. And so that's where that's always the starting point. Is there's a self-selection of there's some people who do think that way and some people who don't, and the ones who do are the ones that sort of come around and and look, you know, they're going to be looking at, at all the managers like us. But then there is questions specifically, you know, for us, pe- people say, well, you know, I'm worried that your, you know, your strategy XYZ might be similar to what we're doing in equity or something like that, because isn't that a risk on strategy? And so why are we, you know, why are we adding a risk on strategy to our book of risk on strategies? And so that's where, you know, we can get into great detail and just see if that's true or not. And it turns out to often not be true, just because we're we're just in a completely different space. And and uh, I mean, like just commodity carry. Even if you just looked at a ticker on Bloomberg, the, the sort of base, the most basic commodity carry system that's sort of long backward and short contango, that's not a risk on necessarily. Like that's not a that's not a strategy that has a correlation to equity beta at all. And in fact. If anything, it's got really strong inflation properties and it just, you know, it had a really great year um, in 2022. So, um, because when you have shortages, that's typically uh, a a scenario where prices are going to be rising. And so backwardation is going to be long and prices are moving higher. So, yeah, I mean, it just comes like to the extent people, you know, potential clients for us or for anybody else. Are willing to really drill down and see because yeah, you you can always start with the with the numbers right anybody is probably willing to give you at least monthly numbers and you can load them in and see okay this makes ratios better. Um, and then that you can have that added little level, level of comfort of trying to drill down and see kind of what the strategies are individually and how they match off but like I think. Uh, you know, our our goal and the goal probably of everyone in our space is just to try to get through that first step of okay, you know, there's so many managers I think, but that's also probably the hard part is like who do I, you know, who do I pick? I feel like I picked X Y Z manager and then they had a really bad year and I wish I would have picked this other one and then so just forget it, I'm just not interested anymore,
2: um, and so like just trying to work through that. That's what the replicators say, Ryan. That's that's exactly their that pitch you gave there. So uh, we have to be careful with that. <laughs> now I have a couple of uh, questions left. One that, yeah, it you know, um, just curious about it. Um, if there is like one thing that you hear people say about trend following that you really disagree with, sort of thing that you come across where you say, yeah, no, I definitely don't agree with that.
0: Well, that um, so the, there's a question of like. Trend beta, and it's like, is there a trend? And so, what I think what's kind of neat about trend is that there is obviously no individual beta, and the proof of that is people who claim to be pure trend following have really different returns, like way more different than like a. If five different firms have an S and P index fund, those performances are very similar to each other, but five different firms could say we are pure trend, and they have totally different performances, and I think really it's that there's trend basis that there is a there is an exhaustive number of sort of strategies that you know in in theor- in a theoretical sense that any trend follower could be represented by that some set of those functions and so uh and then that can be kind of interesting for like let's say let's say someone is is um they just want pure trend. I I think it could be a really fun exercise for them to sort of canvas that basis and try to construct the strategy that fits best for them. It's not something that that, that we do, but um, and then you know when you're evaluating how did a trend follower do, um, you can sort of this goes back to the fitting question. You can find the mix of those things that kind of most closely the sort of nearest neighbor to that to that return stream and then see did they outperform it and that that's where the skill comes in. So but I yeah, so I trend is more interesting than just beta that it there's a lot of, you know, especially the way we think about it where there's sort of all these different the markets are made up of cycles of different frequencies and so if you're employing trend really what you're trying to capture is the meat part of those cycles and so there's some skill in understanding, should I be short-term, should I be long-term, should I be medium-term, should I adjust that over time? Why do I adjust that over time? So there's it, it is definitely more interesting than just a, a very straightforward, um, here's the beta, anybody could do this.
2: Yeah, no, I completely agree. Final question is just uh, whether there's anything in particular you're most excited about as we head into 2023 or concerned about. Could be anything...
0: I guess, I mean, what we're, it's hard to say where are you know, our two best quarters are quarters where bad things happen. So, like, it's hard to, you know, that's, but that's just the, the nature of what we're doing. And when I say we, it's the whole space, right? So, um, so if you're like, well, what, what are the compelling reasons to be in our space? It would be you know the, the the argument that people made from 2010 through 2019 is oh well the central banks controlled everything so nothing could move and and that's definitely true for equities like that created a difficulty for trend following in equities and actually the sort of fascinating response to that is a lot of the sort of bigger names adapted by becoming much much longer term because it meant that they were long a lot and so that adaptation ended up being disadvantageous in 2020 um, so that's where you do have to be careful about sort of adjusting based entirely on past performance. So when we look at, okay, it's easy to say that the Fed, that this or not just Fed, central bank control is probably going to be less than it was, like over you know less over the next decade than it was over the past decade. That their ability to control things should go down because as you, it's more of a political statement that as you're seeing more and more populist governments that sort of the old school approach of just kind of let the Fed do whatever they want and give them unlimited resources to do so. Um, you know, it's if anything, it's more likely to not be true than it is to be exactly the same. So that would be kind of the start. And then um, this was actually mentioned in one of your previous podcasts just the the, the rise of sort of competition, nationalism, protectionism, inflation, uh, you know versus a decade of globalization, so when, global, when you have globalization, everyone's cooperating. So why would crude go from, uh, you know, 20 to 80 to 20, you know, back again in a period when everyone is sort of playing nice together? And so if you think in 2014, the reason crude moved so much was because countries were not playing nice with each other, that one group of countries was trying to put another country out of business by jamming the price of, of oil lower. So and that was a you know a fantastic trade for for um everyone in our space so to the extent that those forces continue to grow you know this one of the big you know covid was obviously a huge contributor to volatility but the you know the russian invasion of ukraine was a huge contributor to volatility especially energy volatility so those types of events that Are generally favorable to adaptive strategies, to strategies that don't have a bias, that don't have a benchmark, that that react to things and sort of lock onto them and stick with them. And so, to the extent that it seems like that should be, you know, and so it's tricky because people come and say, "Well, did I miss it?" And it's like, "Well, think, try to think ten years. Like, if if you know, that's kind of it's a really tough thing where if you try to think of." trend following as something that you missed or that you you get in and you get out based on a view um, that is a very difficult way to manage it because you're just always wrong footed and so to the extent that people have the more sort of steady state approach we've seen you know profit taking um which is great and then when you know and opportunities will come up in the future where maybe you know traditional assets will do well and then you start to see that flowing back like that's the right way to play it but anyway, I'm sort of going off topic there. That that the...
2: No, no, it was actually, no, uh, it was great. And actually, it's uh, super to hear kind of a different explanation to some of the things we talk about. So I, I really do appreciate that. And it's actually an excellent note to wrap up this fascinating conversation, Ryan. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. We hope we can do this again sometime in the future. And to all of you listening today, I hope that you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues from Alan and me. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged as we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources you can find at the website. And not least... Take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged.